We start a new study today. Um, over the next few weeks, which will take us towards the end of the year, uh, we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer, what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It really should be referred to as the Disciples' Prayer, um, where the Lord lays down a pattern for us to follow with regard to prayer. So what I want to do today is give an introduction to this study, and then next week we'll look at something else with regard to prayer, and then we'll get into looking at every aspect of the Lord's Prayer, beginning with Our Father who art in heaven, and then the next week, Hallowed be thy name, the following study will be Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, and so on. But today, if you would, we'll look at Luke and Matthew, but if you'll turn to Luke um, chapter 11, we'll, we'll begin here in this study, which will take us uh, right into probably the early part or middle of December. Let me open in prayer, and then we'll take a look at this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercies, which are new every morning. We thank you that uh, you have called us, transformed us, and continue, Lord, to change us as you conform us and are conforming us to the image of your Son. We know this to be true. We thank you that we have your word. We thank you that we have your spirit, and we pray that you'll help us to understand, Lord, not only the privilege of prayer, but the power of prayer, and how it is we ought to pray. So we pray these things by faith in Christ's name, amen. In Luke 11, in verse 1, it says, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indeed indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." Now, the one of them that approaches Jesus, we don't know for certain who that is. However, who is it that approached Jesus more than any of the other disciples speaking on behalf of the disciples? Peter. Peter. So perhaps this is Peter. It's likely that this is Peter. And over and over and over again, Peter and the rest of the disciples watched Jesus withdraw to secluded places and pray. Time and again. And I'm certain that they witnessed a kind of serenity that, you know, Jesus um, no doubt radiated as a result of his prayer with the Father. Perhaps it was the connection between his prayer life and the power of his ministry that they witnessed and, and, and saw as, you know, supernatural. Uh, but whatever it was, they come to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. And before we begin, we simply ask, you know, what does it mean to pray? What does it mean to pray? What would you say it means to pray? Well, 
the early church theologian, um, Clement of Alexandria, he said that prayer is simply conversation with God. It's conversation with God. Okay, We, as his redeemed people, as his covenant people, get to commune with him. We get to talk to God. And then in response, Jesus knew that his disciples didn't need a, a prayer mantra as much as they needed a pattern for prayer. Not a mantra, but a pattern. And the first thing to notice from this passage is that we are to pray the Bible, quite simply. To pray the Bible. In response, he begins to give them guidance in prayer. And he says, pray, Father. Now, these are words right out of the Old Testament scriptures. The Jewish person addressed God as Father knowing that they were indeed the chosen people of God. They were referred to as his children. Um, So there's a unique relationship established there to, to God through his electing love. So it comes right out of the pages of the Old Testament. If you uh, look at Isaiah 63 and verse 16, what do we read? For you are our father. Through Abraham, or though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Chapter 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Of course, we read this in Hosea first verse of chapter 11. So we're, we're to pray our Father. As his redeemed people, we to this day pray our Father. And we pray that his name would be hallowed. Now we're going to spend, as I said, a week on each one of these topics, praying to the Father, hallowing his name. What does it mean to hallow his name and so on? But today and next week, an overview. So again, over and over in the Old Testament, the name of God refers to the reputation of God. And it means seeing God as who he is. Accepting him as glorious. Acknowledging him as great. So we pray, Father, we pray, hallowed be your name. And then your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, it's interesting as you read uh, the major prophets especially, um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Um, They're looking for a day when the reign of God will be established in the world. Okay, And in a sense, that has taken place by way of the gospel. The gospel is spreading to Gentile nations, and it has for 2,000 years. So the language of the prophets is that one day the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thy kingdom come. It's the reign of God spread from shore to shore to the ends of the earth, to the four corners of the earth, as we read in Revelation. Four corners of the earth. Figurative language, of course. Give us each day, he said, our daily bread that comes right out of Exodus and that God provided what from heaven? Manna from heaven. 
on a daily basis. When they were in the wilderness, he, he provided the children of Israel every day manna. Bread from heaven. Jesus comes and he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. I am the bread of life. He goes on, he says, forgive us our sins. Right? The central thing which is recognized as part of the blessing of God's covenant with Abraham is the forgiveness of sins. Without which there can be no fellowship with the living God. That's why God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. He's sovereign. He hears all things. He knows all things. But you know, Isaiah says, you know, is the arm of the Lord short and that it cannot save? Is his ear heavy that it cannot hear? No. It's your sins that have caused him to turn his face from you. Now in Christ, we're brought into union with God through his son. That's what it is to pray in the name of Jesus. The only access we have to God is through the son. I was given an invitation from my Muslim neighbor to come to the annual mosque, uh, the, the annual gathering at the mosque over here today, this afternoon. And I think it's their way because they're kind of paranoid, especially with what happened at the embassy on 9-11, just like they were paranoid in 9-11-2001. Um, that people are going to blow the place up or something. So they reach out to the neighborhood and they give them food and all. But it says on the little flyer, it says, hear a word from the prophet Muhammad. And it's like, you know what? God doesn't hear their prayers. Muhammad provides no access to the living God. It's only his one and only begotten son that grants access to the sinner, to the throne room of grace. It's Christ alone. So you can bow down all day. You can bow down three times a day, every day for the rest of your life. If you're not in Christ, he don't hear. And then he says, lead us not into temptation. This is part of this pattern of prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And and the petition really is, Lord, protect us from running in the direction of sin in the midst of our trials. Because trials are going to come. Amen? Storms are going to come. We're refined as believers through the fire. And in the midst of trial comes temptation. God tempts no one with evil, we know that. But he certainly causes trials. He leads us into the storm. As Jesus led his disciples into the storm in a boat when he was fast asleep in the back of the boat. So, Lord, lead me in the direction of obedience. I know trials are going to come. When they do, I pray when I'm tempted that I'll be led into the, down the road of obedience and I won't stray into the path of disobedience. Lead us not into temptation. So he's teaching them about prayer from the Bible. They they were to take these things back to God in prayer. This is what he's laying down for his, his disciples when they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And you know what? You know what prayer is about? When we, when we petition God, it's about the desires of our heart. At the end of the day, it's about what our heart desires. Do we desire to thank God? You know, one of the wills of God in the Bible 
you know, as a Christian, we know it's his will that we're, we're saved according to his electing purposes. It's the will of God is our sanctification. The will of God is that we walk being filled or full of the Spirit, right? This is God's will. It may be God's will that we suffer. And another will that in 1 Thessalonians is that we be thankful. This is the will of God, that you be thankful. So how thankful we are um, reveals something of the desire, desires of our heart. Remember the prayer of Solomon when he was about ready to take over the throne of his father David? I mean, we see something of this man's desire. 1 Kings 3, in verse uh, 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king. In place of David, my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many be numbered and counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, understanding and understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And he also blessed him with riches and honor. And there's no king like Solomon. (laughs) But here's the desire of the guy's heart. And see, God knows the desires of the heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, the Bible says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So the more I learn to trust and delight in him and his will, it changes my heart to desire what he wants. And he answers by giving us the desires of our heart. So every part of prayer expresses the deepest desire of your heart, of our heart. When you adore God in prayer, you're saying, God, you're more important than anything else in this world. I worship you. I acknowledge your infinitude and and, and I acknowledge my finiteness. I'm acknowledging your worth. You are great. We thank God. We're acknowledging that all things, all good things come down from the Lord. All things ultimately are according to your sovereign rule. I'm acknowledging his providence. I'm acknowledging his sovereignty. And I'm thanking him for his will that is being done in and through my life. So we express thanksgiving also when we're thanking him for answers to our prayers. Things that deeply matter to us. How many of you, you pray for something long term. God answers the prayer. You're rejoicing, but it doesn't enter your mind right away to thank him, right? I mean, I know we all do. I know I do. And all of a sudden, I'm like, that's an answer to prayer. It's like, duh, after the fact. And then, of course, we thank him. But how quick we are to forget. So we lift up our desires to God, growing to delight ourselves in the Lord. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to know teaching them how to pray. When we confess our sins, 
when we seek forgiveness in prayer. We're we're expressing that heart's desire to be forgiven. Two kinds of forgiveness in the Bible for the Christian, right? There's positional forgiveness. Because we're in Christ, you're forgiven for past sins, present sins, future sins, once and for all and forever, forgiven because of Calvary. Why then are we instructed to ask for forgiveness of our sins? Because of the relationship that we have. We have a position that's eternal, but the other kind of forgiveness is referred to as paternal forgiveness. Paternal forgiveness. Acknowledging that we have sinned primarily and ultimately against our Creator and our Redeemer. So there's a difference between positional forgiveness and paternal forgiveness. I was teaching these little kids out here on Friday. And I'm sitting down Indian style teaching these little kids a Bible lesson from 1 Timothy. And this little kid takes a baseball hat and just smacks me right in the face with it. (laughs) Right in the middle of it all. You know, I look at him, I'm a little disturbed at the moment. And I I love this little guy. He's hysterical. One of the parents takes him off and I think reprimands him a little bit. But this little kid comes walking back out, and he goes, Path to Lita. But he wouldn't look me in the eye. I'm sorry about hitting you with the hat. And I said, look me in the eye. And he would shift all over the place. Look me in the eye. And he said, he says, would you forgive me? Of course I forgive you. That's what it's like with our Heavenly Father. Paternal forgiveness. Relational forgiveness, not positional forgiveness. That's accomplished at the cross. But this, this, this provides us, his work provides us an ongoing relationship with the living God. Therefore, Jesus said, pray like this. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And I forgive the little lad. Imagine holding the grudge against a two-year-old, or three or whatever it is, if you're out there in the fellowship hall. When we intercede for one another, okay, we, we're, we're all praying for somebody. We pray for the church, we pray for one another, we pray for our loved ones, we pray for those we love that are lost, we pray for those that we love that are saved. Lord, let my child be saved. Lord, invade their life. Open their eyes, give them ears to ear, eyes to see, hearts to understand. I've been praying for my parents because my little brother, as you probably know, died a couple months ago. He wasn't even 25, baby of the family. And I've been praying for my parents that he'll provide them a peace. Especially like two, three months after the loss, it's much harder then than it is right away. Right, Val? Look, it's kind of hard, right? Two, three, four months. And I'm talking to him last Sunday. He says, John, I cannot tell you the peace that we have. Answer to prayer. Thank you, Lord. Right? We intercede on behalf of others. So this expresses the deep desires of our heart. Now, we're going to kind of, kind of, kind of shift now, and we're going to move to Matthew. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. Look at chapter 6. Now, Jesus taught his disciples about piety, empathy, and prayer. And they all kind of connect, okay? 
So look at Matthew chapter 6. It's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Well, actually, we studied it. You know, we spent like eight months, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters. So some of this will be a reminder for you if you were, if you were paying attention. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. Beware, Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before other people, okay, here it is, in order to be seen by them. He doesn't see beware, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people. What he says is beware that the motivation for your righteousness is to be seen by other people. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Now, Jesus goes on and he provides a couple illustrations to the point. Okay? Verse 2, thus, okay, when you give to the needy, for instance, don't sound a trumpet before them. Some of the hypocrites in this day would have a little entourage and going before them was a trumpeter to blow the horn before he comes in to give alms. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Look at the man. <laughs> Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What's the reward? The accolades of men. Oh, such an upright fellow. Now, Jesus, he actually provides a rather, you know, comical description. He pictures this pretentious Pharisee on his way to make a donation, and leading the way is, again, this band of trumpeteers, blowing their horns in order to gather a, a crowd. And he's referred to Jesus as a hypocrite, hypocrites, an actor, one who wears a mask, And in the Greek dramas, an actor would wear a mask to exaggerate the role he was playing. That which was being dramatized. It was an exaggeration. So, hypocrite in the context of a drama or, or, or in acting, people are expected to act. <laughs> You're expected. That's your role. You're ex- expected to pretend Anyone in drama class? Ever? Maybe not? We have drama classes at my house. (laughs) When the kids were growing up. I pretend to be all kinds of people. Drama. But they're expecting this, right? They're expecting me to act like an idiot or a fool in whatever role that I was pretending to be. That's part of the deal. But Jesus is here criticizing two-faced spirituality. Two-faced spirituality. The fake spirituality of the Pharisees. That's who he's really pointing his finger at. Where you have hypocritical leaders, there's going to be some hypocritical followers. Where there's false teachers, there's going to be false converts. Or there'd be no false teachers if they didn't have converts. Amen? So he's saying that the religion of the Pharisees is not genuine. It's a theatrical religion. That was his point. 
Their religious activities were done for the sake of impressing men. They weren't for glorifying God. And this term later came to mean someone who pretends to be what they're not. Hypocrites, as we know it today, hypocrite. That's what we think of. So this kind of hypocrisy looks very, very real. And here's Jesus' point. The point is it's not obvious. It looks authentic. It's, it's difficult to distinguish, to discern. They're admired by and honored by those who see them. Jesus says, don't go showing off your generosity with the intention that people will take notice. In fact, Jesus goes as far to say, he says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That is, don't be self-conscious about your giving. Because because even if you work so that people don't notice, uh, you can chalk up points or cut notches in your belt in your own mind. Right? It's easy to fall prey to this. So, with this attitude in mind, okay, Jesus' teaching here, with this attitude, he transitions into prayer in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they too, they've received their reward. Now, th- th- that is not to discount corporate prayer, beloved. Amen? Some people gathered in corporate prayer this morning. Praise God for that. We have people who gather in corporate prayer on Monday nights. This is not discounting corporate prayer. I've been in corporate prayer meetings my whole Christian life. They're a joy. It's just irritating when someone makes a show in the middle of it. It's really irritating. <laughs> So here again, it's motivation that Jesus is after. Motivation behind our prayers. Is it to be heard? Is it to be seen by men? Is it that men will take notice and say, whoa, they really know the scripture. It's great to pray scripture, folding them into our prayers. But again, if the motivation is for people to stand back and, oh, I can't pray around him or her. Because they're just they're such a great prayer. Jesus is after devotion and satisfaction in the audience of one. In this entire account. Verse 4. Let your giving be in secret so that your father who sees in what? Secret will reward you openly. Verse 6. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray your father who's in? Secret. And your father who's in secret, he will reward you. Verse 18, talking about fasting. Another thing for which the hypocrites paraded themselves. They caused themselves to be disheveled, wouldn't shower, wouldn't wash their face so that they could walk around looking all gaunt. And people go, are you okay? I'm just fasting. (laughs) That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Uh, Most of us, no doubt, likely have an ongoing struggle with things like this, right? Let's face it. We all sometimes want to be seen 
Sometimes that is our motivation. As we mature and grow, you really don't care what men think of you. To, to some degree. And this can be bondage. John Stott said this, quote, As nothing destroys prayer like side glances at human spectators, so nothing enriches it like a sense that God is watching. End quote. So how then do we get free from the desires and accolades of men or, or the praises of self? It's to realize that he's all the audience we need. That's why Jesus went away alone to secluded places. And they recognized that. Notice Jesus didn't say, he never said, did you ever notice how I get up before you all get up? Every time you get up, I'm, I'm gone. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> the Lord of glory never said that. They just recognized what he did and asked. They inquired and he says, yeah, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Verses 5 and 6, speaking about hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogue. Great place to go and pray, by the way. But again, it's motivation. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That's the motivation. Great place to pray in the synagogue. Nothing wrong with that. But they've received their reward. The synagogue was a local place of assembly. That's where you would go. So sincere prayer was perfectly appropriate. Street corners were also, believe it or not, normal places to stop at particular times of day for the sake of prayer. Perfectly acceptable. But it's interesting that the word used for street in verse 2 is different than the street here because here, in verse 2, it means a, a narrow alleyway. In here, it, it, it means an open square. The marketplace. And what's the marketplace filled with? Peeps. People. So the hypocrite loves to stand in the open square to be seen. Jesus rebukes this. Notice verse 6. But when you pray, you, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the only thing that matters, your father who sees. So a contentment and satisfaction for pleasing this audience of one. That's the point. So when, you're, when, you're, when your life is lived in the presence of the Father, you don't need anything else. You don't need the accolades of men. You don't need their applause. So motivation behind your devotion, uh, there, there's an entirely different aim here, and this is what Jesus is after. See, we're recipients of grace, amen? Unmerited favor. We're at the cross. He, he provided propitiation and expiation. Satisfaction of the Father through the Son. Providing expiation, the removal of all our sin, past, present, and future. You have all the favor from God you'll ever need through the cross of Jesus Christ. Through the union we have in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So this is a life motivated by thanksgiving, motivated by humility in response to all this glorious work and the union that we have, not only union we have, but communion that we have by way of that union. Amen? 
And God will one day show that he was pleased with your deeds of devotion, although they may have been concealed from the eyes of men. But we receive a reward, beloved, in both time and eternity. And you know what reward a believer has here on earth who has this mindset? It's the blessing of character. It's the blessing of happiness. It's the blessing of contentment and joy. Because those who are always after the accolades and applause of man, they have no contentment and they have no joy. So there is reward now. And that's the open reward that we receive here and now, is a a particular contentment, a joy, a satisfaction in him. You know, I've been preaching the gospel quite a while. I've preached in places where people hate me because they hate. I preached at Val's husband's wedding. Uh, um, funeral, sorry. <laughs> Wedding. <laughs> the glory, glorified presence of Jesus. And I'm thinking I'm amongst friends because I'm in a church. And I'm thinking this is going to be the most glorious, encouraging message that these people could ever hear. And it was a message for Christians. Because I'm thinking the place is filled with 350, 400 Christians for the most part. They hated the message. And it was right out of the Bible. Because it had to do with the sovereign, electing purposes of God to begin with. I wasn't there to please them. I was to please God by rightly proclaiming his word. And the more you preach the word, you can preach on justification by faith alone. And someone won't like it. You, you, can, you can preach on we're required to walk in righteousness because we've been declared righteous. There's some Christians who won't like that. Tough, get over it. I'm not here to please you. Amen? Now, Jesus is going to go on and say that all prayer isn't truly prayer. And I can see I'm not going to get through this, unfortunately. He talks about pagan prayer. And and pagans pray with the idea of thinking that they have to kind of coerce or manipulate these deities to please them so that they answer their little prayers. But true prayer has a distinct sound to it. And it's more than religious cliches. It's more than selfish requests. And Jesus is here after creating a praying people. So he tells us what to pray, how to pray, for whom we're to pray. He, he doesn't give reference here, notice, to time. He gives no reference to form. He, he gives no reference to posture or places of prayer. He does refer to the prayer closet, which means a secret place. So he's not teaching on those particulars. His focus is quality. His focus is character. And his focus is tone of prayer. He's not speaking about formational prayer, regimental prayer, liturgical prayer. There's plenty of that in our day. Plenty throughout time. And another thing he doesn't mention is length. Verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Heaping up empty phrases is what, is, is what pagans did, thinking they would be heard. The more they babble on, 
the more likely their gods are to hear them. As though being a proverbial stammer or babbler, um, repeating the same formula many times over, then, then we can enter in and God will open his ears to us. In the Roman Catholic Church, a standard rosary recital is 53 Hail Marys. That's vain repetition for which Jesus denounced. Volume or or quantity of prayer is not some effective instrument that moves the hand of God. You ever been in a prayer meeting, like a public prayer meeting, there's the guy who increases his volume as he prays? Before you know it, he's yelling. It's like, bro, settle down. Get a handle on yourself. You know, and then he, in the name of Jesus. Are you kidding me? Yelling and bantering. Remember the 450 prophets of Baal? Remember that story, First Kings? They're out there cutting themselves and doing all this it's craziness. But those are pagan empty phrases. Jesus says, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. Now, Jesus is not providing an excuse not to pray here either. Amen? (laughs) But he's giving you reasons for praying, praying properly, and he says, don't babble on in your prayers. There's no reason to try to badger God or press him as though you're trying to overcome some reluctance on his part to answer your prayer. And that's what the pagans tried to do. They, they, they tried to exasperate these pagan gods. Because their gods were erratic and flaky. And their nature was inconsistent. The one true God, his nature is not inconsistent. It's always consistent. So they felt they had to manipulate or pester their deities. Now, this word heap up empty phrases comes from um, batalageo. Nobody really knows what it means for certain, but some scholars think that it was derived from King Battus, who was a, 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 he stammered, he stuttered. But most regarded is is an onomatopoetic expression where the word sounds something like it is to indicate its meaning. And in here, you know, it's batalageo, to babble on. Sounds like it's meeting. Now, again, it's important to note Jesus is not prohibiting repetition in prayer. After all, Jesus prayed the same thing over in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? But one way to Babylon like the pagans is one way is to recite the very prayer that Jesus is laying down as a pattern. Right? The, the only prayer someone knows is reciting the Lord's Prayer. You know, and it, it's easy to recite a prayer um, or, or to model prayer is, is a parrot or a creed or a song or a confession. Confessions and creeds are good But if they're just rotely recited without any connection to the heart, it's the same thing as babbling on. And oftentimes heavy, heavy liturgical forms of worship 
uh, become nothing but a babbling exercise. I've been in them before. Not connected to them, but I just witnessed, like, do these people even know what they're saying? Call and response. All day, call and response. Call and response. And that's good if your heart's connected to it. But if you're like, you're yawning as you're saying it, she's like, do, do you even know what you're saying? So it's this kind of empty-headed reciting that is short of pagan babbling, which Jesus says, look, don't be like that. Jesus says, your father's not like that. He knows all things, including what you need before you even ask. So you're not going to win his favor by babbling on. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian prayer is going to be brief. Jesus just gives an example. It's brief, it's to the point. I mean, do you not pray like that throughout the day? Short little prayers throughout the day? Most of my prayers are short all throughout the day. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. I mean, consciously aware of the presence of God, of the glory of God, of the power of God, of the magnificence of God in your life. Pray without ceasing. My kids are grown. They've moved out. You never stop praying for them. Short little prayers, concise, to the point. You're always interceding. But that's not to say every Christian prayer is brief. Sometimes you may intercede for minutes, many minutes, an hour, two hours. Corporate prayer meetings can last an hour and a half, two hours. They're great. But most of our prayers will be marked with brevity. Very brief, concise. God doesn't have to be hounded or manipulated. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's much like we are as parents. If, you, if you're engaged with your children throughout life, you know them better than they know themselves. Amen? You know them. You know them inside and out. You don't know every motivation of the heart, but you know them very well. And as a parent, you know what they need compared to what it is they want. Amen? God's no different. We pray for many things we want. You don't see them because that's not what we needed. And many times God protects us from ourselves. That's why Jesus said, Lord, Father, Jesus knows why he came to earth, right? It was to live in perfect obedience to the Father and lay down his life as a living sacrifice. And when he was in the garden, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. The cup of what? The cup of suffering, the, the cup of God's unmitigated wrath. That was the cup. Let that cup pass. But if not, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the Son of God. The sovereign Son of God. Also, when we pray, our, our prayers don't have to cover every base of every aspect of life every time. Some people, you know, I think, they think that unless they pray at incredible length, they're not truly spiritual. You know, that's not true. Or they have to be a Christian super warrior. You know, you have to pray for many hours a day. There's nothing wrong with that. All that to say there's nothing wrong with brief, concise prayers. So effective prayer and devotion is not based upon numbers, minutes, and so on. Perhaps Jesus is just saying here, relax. Relax. 
I know what you need. I know what the church needs. So pray like this. Right? Pray like this. Here's the pattern. Pray like the Apostle Paul prayed. You know, I, I, I can look through Scripture and, and read prayers and pray like this. So, and once again, beloved, this is not to discount lengthy prayer time <clears throat> or intercession. Well, there's more that can be said, but we're out of time. So we'll pick it up in the second part of our introduction on prayer next week. Amen, beloved? Okay. Father, we do thank you for this almost sometimes unimaginable privilege that we have to enter in to the throne room of grace that our prayers are heard and received because of our eternal mediator, your son, Jesus Christ, our access to your throne. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of grace, mercy, love, kindness, gentleness that you show us. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to pray. Help us to pray as you taught the disciples. Help us to pray, Lord, uh, as is modeled through Scripture by uh, great men and women of God throughout redemptive history. Help us to be mindful, Lord, of your will, your commanded will, and may our desires coincide with your desires. So as we delight ourselves in you, you will give us the desires of our heart. Lord, help us, we pray. We are weak, and without you, we're helpless. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.